0: The science does not improve herbal medicine. It creates a framework within which herbal medicine can be accepted by our culture. But it doesn't make the herbalism better. Nettles is nettles.
1: You're listening to Plant Love Radio, episode number 51. Welcome to Plant Love Radio. A place where you'll discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and resilient life through the wonders of herbal medicine. I'm your host, Lana Camille, a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. You love my amazing guests herbal teachers, clinicians, medicine makers, growers, and artists. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hi friends, I'm so excited to be back to return to you with a new episode of this podcast. Have you ever looked at herbal teas on your supermarket shelf and wondered how did all these tastes and flavors ended up coming together so beautifully? Of course, many recipes have been passed down from one generation to another, but I was curious to learn more. And my today's guest is just the person to talk about this. David Hoffman is an internationally renowned medical herbalist who has been practicing phytotherapy for close to 40 years. In our deep conversation, we touched upon many areas, from criteria and rules of herbal formulating, the true future of herbal medicine who it belongs to and how David sees that, ways of excelling at interpreting herbal medicine resources, to questions of quality, fairness, ecology, and even David's thoughts on the newest products like CBD and so much more. David is an author of 17 herbal textbooks and a chief formulator at Traditional Medicinals, a company that I love. He's also a fellow of Britain's National Institute of Medical Herbalists, a teacher at the California School of Herbal Studies and a visiting faculty at the Bastyr University in Washington. I was especially humbled to have this opportunity to interview David. The times when I learn from him always feel like such a gift to me. You'll enjoy hearing David's fascinating story and will appreciate his passion, conviction, and mission as they relate to plant medicine. This episode is absolutely full of incredible resources. To get access to those, please visit plantloveradio.com slash 51. Enjoy. David, hello. How are you doing? Really good. Really, really thrilled, really excited, and humbled to have you here on the show. Welcome. Welcome. Um, I it's remember one of the first lectures of yours that I have attended. We met at the International Herb Symposium. Oh, well, and I remember you. getting you. your medical herbalism uh, book not long. Prior to that, and I was thinking, um, I was thinking about the author, the person that wrote this book. And for some reason, I expected you to be a super conservative person because maybe it's, maybe it was all the structures and all the chemistry and all the science in it. But then I heard your presentation and I understood that I was very wrong in my imagination. So, so welcome again. (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh yeah. Um, other other than
0: being conservative in in therapy, because we should never take risks with patients, I'm about the least conservative person you can imagine. Um, and if you you wanted to know about how I got into herbalism and all of all of that, which I'm happy to share, but I've realised recently that it's very difficult for people to actually either remember or imagine yes. what life was like before Ronald Reagan and all of that stuff. So I go back to the 1970s. Um, I was involved in the, and I, for our conversation, I go back long before that. Um, but I was very involved in um, setting up Earth First I'm sorry, Friends of the Earth in England in 1970, it was a time of not just extreme radicalism, but the core of it was that people, individuals were taking responsibility for their lives, not just handing everything over to the capitalists or the government or whatever. So, um, a number of different themes were, were weaving their way into my life. Um, being a hippie revolutionary from from the day, um, what I was being really drawn to in terms of my work and my education and everything was ecology. The fact that everything fits together. We're all part of an integrated whole, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as a student of biology, that is not what the scientists were telling us. Um, now they would because the science is, is there for that. But... Being an, um, a radical ecologist rather than a scientific ecologist, um, it led me to thinking in all sorts of non-traditional ways, sorry, non-scientifically traditional ways. And all right, the first story, uh, the thing that actually really got me into herbalism, was very, very, very specific. Anybody who's ever done a degree or academic study in botany has been told repeatedly that there is nothing to herbal medicine. It's just there is this whole history of botanists and herbalists not talking to each other in Europe. It's a really weird old history. So when I started in all of this, there was the conditioned thought from my education that, oh, if there was anything to herbalism, the doctors and the scientists would know all about it. So I had this bias, not a factual, oh, no no evidence there was nothing to it. It was just the conditioning. So in the summer of 1974, um, just after I graduated, there was a heat wave in Wales where I was living. Heat wave in Wales meant it got to about 75 degrees for four days in a row. But still, for Wales, that was really, really severe. Trees were dying, you know. So, and what that did to me was for some strange reason, I didn't sleep for about a week. And living in the community I was living in, um, they all got very quickly that I really needed to go to sleep because I was being very weird. They kept trying to give me some herbal stuff to drink, and I refused to drink it because I had a degree in botany. And, quote, I knew better, unquote. So after a few more days, they all ganged up on me and made me drink this cup of really strong valerian tea. Valerian smells extreme, and it tastes even weirder. And they made me drink it. I wasn't going to drink it. I fell asleep in about half an hour and had the most restful night's sleep I think I've ever had. I woke up totally refreshed. It was just wonderful. And what I realized after that was that instead of the ecologist in me viewing the world as something that we ecologists had to save, I had just experienced the world saving me, putting it in a very extreme weird way, but i what I really realized was that we 're all part of a cycle. there is no us and them there is no us in charge we 're going to control everything. We need to humbly accept that we 're part of a vast living being. That got me over my my um, my educated rejection of herbalism and recognized my complete uneducation when it came to herbal medicine. And with, with my sort of academic background, that got me into reading and studying. And then I signed up for the training with the National Institute of Medical Herbalists, which is the um, the oldest professional body of herbal clinicians in the Western world. Um, and quite to my surprise, well over a half of the herbs we were using then and being trained in are North American plants because um, a number of herbalists left America at the end of the 19th century because I think they knew what was coming, um, came to England and with English herbalists set up the organization that I belong to. So I know a lot about American plants without originally knowing they were from America. The one real weakness in our training was there wasn't enough growing and preparing. We were much more physician-orientated rather than pharmacist-orientated. So I was in clinical practice for years and then was doing some teaching as well. But I came to America in 1985, 86, sorry, um, after running for parliament in 1983 for the Green Party, um, which luckily none of us got elected because we didn't know what we were doing. We were doing it to raise issues. Um, I'm glad I wasn't elected, but it was it was the first time green issues were actually brought into the public arena. Um, Things are very, very different now. But after that election, uh, Margaret Thatcher was elected the third time. And it it was, to me, it was the equivalent shock of uh, Trump being elected. I just couldn't believe it. And so, the deadhead yes. in me decided to come yes, to California. Yes, Please please do. And then please I met do. Rosemary, so you didn't know did really anyone tour. in the United um,
1: States at the time other oh, than Rosemary, Rosemary,
0: right? Rosemary client star. Should I talk about
2: okay. her at all? I'm, I'll, I'll No, I didn't even
0: know her. What What I did, mm-hmm. looking back on it, um, I have no idea where I was coming mm-hmm. from when I did this. Um, I just found um, some New okay. Age magazine and wrote letters to every one of the herbal things I could see in it okay. to see if they wanted me to um, come do some teaching. Um, okay. And quite a few people did. Uh Luckily, I started with uh, the Herb School with Rosemary, made a total instant connection, Um, just complete family energy. Um, So what I fell in love with over here wasn't so much the herbalism, because actually in 1986, there really wasn't very much herbalism going on. And compared to Europe, what was going on was embarrassingly bad. And compared to China, the Chinese herbalists were really struggling to be legally allowed to do what they could do. What totally changed my life was recognizing real herbalism. Herbalism from people who were, their hands were in the soil, they knew how to make the medicines, and they knew what worked for ordinary, everyday illnesses. Now, I'd been trained as a clinician. I could, I could treat I all sorts of really extreme things. I wasn't all that good on cops and colts, just like mainstream MDs aren't. So I saw I saw herbalism as um for the first time as a really living art as well as the living science that I knew about. So gave me the opportunity to marry the art and the science. So um, I would consider myself to be still very much a scientific herbalist, Um, but um, I'm a tree hugger. Um, That is the most important issue for me, the recognition of the living, vibrant relationship between the plant world and the human world. And that needs to be nurtured and worked with 24 hours a day, based on what humanity is doing out there. So, what that gave me an opportunity to do was discover the Californian herbal revival, herbal revival that was going on, which of course was only a small part of the revival going on around the country. Um, Rosemary introduced me to people on the east coast, and. I got to know people there quite well. And I should just say that now California is actually probably the least active herb well, Northern California where where I live. Um lots of herbalists because we've got lots of herb schools. But I would say the real cutting edge of, of people's herbalism is either in the Midwest mm-hmm. or in well I would say New England, but then I probably think of New England as as stretching too far. The East Coast, um, the Northwest is is very active as well, but um, all the really hardcore green visionary herbalists Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um, left California. Uh, And I totally understand why they did, um, but they did it just when I'd come to California and I loved the place. So I'm here.
1: I understand. So over the years, you've been teaching at the California School of Herbal Studies, you have been writing, and then you became a chief formulator for the traditional medicinals, right? So when did that happen?
0: Well, that was in um, 2004, Um, but we missed something out. I was in clinical practice till around about 2000, um, doing my, my very medically orientated take mm-hmm. on on herbalism so actually it was probably totally illegal but I was working within um, a medical clinic under the auspices of licensed practitioners so mm-hmm. I slowly withdrew from clinical practice and that was difficult because I felt guilty you know practitioners are supposed to help people and I was running out of attention so I We drew from that and in the process increased the amount of teaching and traveling to teach that I do. So during the 90s, I was on the road most of the time. Um, So in 2004, well, after 9-11 and after the invasion of Iraq, when I saw what was happening, I just didn't want to be on the road anymore. I didn't want to be around all these men with guns. I, I I won't take that any further. Um, Being a very radical pacifist, the state America has got itself into is really disturbing. But deciding not to be on the road so much, and also deciding not to be in clinical practice anymore, and there being only one herb school here, um, I needed to pay my rent. And Actually, Traditional Medicinals was co-founded by Rosemary back in 1974. She's one of these amazing people who just generates things. um, Mountain Rose started from her. Um, Traditional Medicinals, the California School of Herbal Studies, Sage Mountain, a whole bunch of stuff. So Mm -hmm. it it really made sense when I saw when I recognized the need I had, to um, discuss it with Drake, um, the other co-founder. And yes, my form of herbalism totally fits in to what Rosemary set up here. Um, So yes, I've been formulating since um, 2004, but I should make a point. I'm here to further herbalism.
1: And what does that mean to you?
0: Yeah, I'm not here to further traditional medicinals. So Mm -hmm. I make the, and I've got to be really careful of how I say this because it could be misunderstood. I totally support traditional medicinals, but I work for the green plants and I formulate teas the way the green plants work best together. I don't just do what TM business wants. And luckily, it all works perfectly well. Um, It was very difficult for me with my political background. Background, which I haven't really, really talked about, to start working for a capitalist corporation. So um, we, we have a friendly yet interesting relationship.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. A like
0: that. Um, because, let, let me give you an example. Um, sure. What I find very difficult is that we are living in a country that has had its herbal memory wiped clean. Some people are relearning it, of course, and ethnic communities have their own herbalism. Um, But if we as a tea company can come up with all sorts of creative, therapeutically effective, tasty teas, however, they're going to be made with herbs that no one's heard of. Not because they're rare, weird herbs, but because all that information was wiped from the American memory. So I'm not sure how far it's appropriate to just put up with the fact that everyone's forgotten. Shouldn't we be re-educating rather than telling people we've got a team whose name they recognize like chamomile, but actually the active is something else in the team. I think um People really need to know what they're taking. Otherwise, why give it to them?
1: Do you believe that a lot of people that buy teas in supermarkets, that they might not exactly know what's in their teas? Oh,
0: I would say the majority.
2: Very majority. Well, we're talking
0: about herb teas, yes. Um, so not only would they not know what was in there, but that's not much of a problem because actually the way the American herb industry is set up. I think the industry is now responsible and uh, makes good products. When I first came over here, no, but here, but now after Duchesne and all of that, it, it, I think that they're doing all right. Um, but, well, let me tell you something that's happening in California at the moment. If I'm out, doing a public talk or we're having business meetings, and mention the phrase medicinal herb or herbal medicine or anything with those combinations in, immediately, most people are going to be thinking about cannabis
2: Mm -hmm. because
0: Mm -hmm. that's the medicinal herb. So the problem is not that people don't know what's in the teas. They're seeing the teas through a sort of conceptual filter that Mm -hmm. the advertisers are laying on people. The advertisers and the marketers making false false promises and creating false expectations.
1: I hear you. And I recently had a conversation with another herbalist and when I was asking her uh, some of the questions of resources and forums and things of that type and things to stay away from, this is one thing that she brought up that there is all this discussion of cannabis and CBD and, and it feels like the rest of the herbal medicine and the rest of the discussion on herbal remedies kind of like disappears exactly. and, and, the, and in reality this is just one plant yeah. and so yeah. we have such a beautiful diversity and so it's uh, it's what in vogue right now but it certainly is just one plant.
0: Exactly and um... This is a, um, a commercial, this commercial momentum behind CBD hemp products,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which means there's a momentum behind not talking about the other herbs because they only want to talk about the things people know about. And right. there's, there's going to be problems coming down the line. Right. So let's leave hemp alone. Um, i'm getting really bored
1: with it of course of course about three or four months ago i interviewed an herbalist who's also actually working at a cannabis dispensary and one thing that she said very beautifully that that cannabis might be in a way a gateway herb because maybe they mm. don't know any other herbs and so this is a, sort of like an opening for them an introduction to explore uh, a beauty and variety of other I- plants and so i really i really appreciated and enjoyed I, that i approach. hope
0: that works um i was given exactly the same rationale for about 10 years ago tm traditional medicinals, Mm -hmm. came out with a line of green teas, Mm -hmm.
2: um,
0: which were quite pleasant, and each one had a different medicinal herb in it. And the idea was that the green tea would be recognized, and it would draw draw people into um, using a wider range of herbs, and I'm not sure that worked. Mm
2: -hmm. So Mm
0: -hmm. it's a really good idea, and that's what it would do for me if I hadn't, if I didn't know about stuff. The cannabis teas out there, no one is making hemp tea. Hemp tea is disgusting. (laughs) So it's being mixed with other things. I'd want to know what they are. i talking to friends of mine who work in dispensaries about teas. um, Their feedback seems to be that the people don't care what's in the tea as long as it gets rid of the flavor of the cannabis.
1: What's also very interesting that I hear from a lot of teachers and herbalists that I respect greatly is that um, with many companies that appear today, whether it's a CBD or any other type of cannabis companies, that a lot of people just don't know how how reputable some of the companies that appear on the market. And so this is just something to keep in mind. But yeah, David, I'm, yep, go ahead. Most
0: of, most of the hemp products being produced are using some pretty clever technology
2: mm-hmm. that would
0: freak out most herbalists
2: if yeah, they actually knew
0: what was being done to those plants.
2: Yeah, um, carbon,
0: critical carbon dioxide extraction and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Way, it's moving a long way from the
2: plant.
1: Very interesting. So, David, can I actually bring you back a little bit? Yeah. So, when you join Traditional Medicinals, um, I know that some of the values of the company really resonated with you. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: It's the same one, but it takes different forms. It's What it comes down to is respect. Mm-hmm. So, TM really respects the herbs we use. It
2: mm-hmm.
0: goes into incredible does an incredible amount of work to ensure that when we say we've got organic herbs, they are organic. We've been there. We go every other year, regardless of where it is in the world we're getting it from, we don't buy things on what's called the spot market. We mm-hmm. set up relationships with growers.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, incredible work, incredible skills, and an incredible amount of money goes into doing that just to make sure that our organic chamomile is good organic chamomile right. um, and all the other ones. So there is the built-in recognition that herbs are worthy of that degree of respect. Right. The whole of the supply chains are checked out for organic stuff. But more importantly, they're checked out for how the workers are, mm-hmm. wor- uh, are treated. So there's respect for everyone along the whole supply chain. Um, so maybe the collectors, it may be the growers, it could be the packers, whatever. We we put a lot of um, attention and money back into a number of the communities that grow our herbs for us um, because it's recognized that why should this Western company be profiting off all these people's work? So um, traditional medicinals is a very nurturing family mm-hmm. that respects herbalism, respects herbs, respects the consumer, and actually, this will sound a bit strange, respects the law. When I first came here, I was totally surprised how legal we are. Um, being a traditional herbalist, being legal is not anything I ever thought about. Not that I was trying to be illegal. Please don't misunderstand. I do understand, I do. Well, you know where I'm coming from. So, I'm going to talk about something called DSHEA, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. That's the um, act of Congress which controls medicinal herbs. We follow the law implicitly, we don't cut any corners, which means we're not saving money that way, but it means we're also respecting the government. Um, So even though we make mistakes like any company makes mistakes, um, we're being respected by the people that we respect. we've become a voice for real herbalism, loud voice because the company has become so big, a voice for real herbalism in the FDA and in other government agencies, Um, especially standards in the pharmacopoeia. So the company, all right, I've got to say this really carefully, the company is as good as it can be Given the fact that it's a capitalist corporation, nothing capitalist can be healing, as far as I'm concerned, which is why they keep me in the formulation department.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: So, right. um, um, which is why I, I partly what was behind me saying I'm here to further herbalism, not the company.
2: And they get
0: where I'm at with with that one. Now, the challenge has become that as the older people here who've been here 30, 35 years, the group of people who started the place, um, as they've retired, lots of new people are coming in. So unless we really maintain um, clarity around our respect and our support and all, all of that, very wonderful stuff. It's just going to disappear by default. Um, so there's a group of us here who are going to make sure that doesn't happen. I think at least as important as drinking her teas is, is hugging tre- um, hugging trees and, and growing weeds and actually right. being in the soil. Right. That, if If our culture spent more time in gardens or in the strip of weeds along the side of the road, it would be a healthier, saner culture.
1: Very wise, very wise. I'd like to take a quick pause here. My guests always generously offer to share their wisdom and work in many different ways. This is one of the examples. Today, you, as my listeners, can participate in a giveaway brought to you by David's company, Traditional Medicinals. The prize is a beautiful box of three new flavors of Traditional Medicinals teas. Throat Coat Eucalyptus, the throat coat line in general, is a must for me in my kitchen and my travel first aid kit. Rishi Mushroom and Everyday Detox Shasandra Berry. This is so perfect for this season. To participate in this giveaway, head over to co thicom plantloveradio. You can also find the link in the show notes or click on the support button in my website menu. And please comment on the giveaway post of the episode you're listening to now. What was your favorite part of this interview? I will choose a winner within two weeks. The software also allows you to support my work, but you do not have to be a supporter to participate in this giveaway. I look forward to your feedback on the episode. Now let's get back to our conversation. Let me let me take you one step back. You said that they yeah. keep you in the formulating in the formulation department, and so I really love that.
0: I mean that, that as a sort of. I job. know,
1: I know, um, I know. We,
0: we all we we all have our strengths here. Um, right. Everybody knows where I'm at, so we're happy with me being formulated. And which actually affects everybody else because I'm making sure the formulations are traditional, therapeutic and effective.
1: Of course. And, and so that's why I wanted to talk a little bit about formulation. So I have a couple of teas that are absolutely staples in my house. So whether it is throat coat or breathe easy or there are a few other ones that are nourishing. And I just, I have it in every single travel bag and every single place where I know that, you know, I won't have access to bulk herbs and things of that type. And I know that every time you go to any of the herbal conferences, there are always, there is always support and always. With yeah. such generosity from traditional medicinal. So you started with few uh, simple blends, and some of them were created by Rosemary Gladstar. But then the company started growing. And I, uh, before our interview, I actually went on your website, and I counted there were like over 60 different products. And so... Yeah. I wanted to ask you to talk about some of the goals and the intentionality of the process of developing these new formulations.
2: Yeah, that's
0: a really good question. Um, all right, I'm just going to talk about our bag tea, what we call bag tea products. Please, um please. We're starting to develop some food products, but I'm not organizing those. In the bag teas, you can see them as being two different sorts. There are the ones which are overtly dietary supplements. They've got claims, and they're directed to. I'm sorry, they're structured so that they alleviate symptoms or distress of some sort or another, like throat code. Um, there's no point drinking it unless you've got the symptoms to get rid of. So we've got oh, a course. whole bunch of those,
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: except. Well, maybe we should just, there's a point I'm going to make you might want me to come back to. Okay. Nobody, because of Duche and the way the law's written, nobody is allowed to treat uh, problems of the lungs and the throat and even the sinuses um, with a dietary supplement, even though lots of people do. So the reason we don't have cough teams is that it would be illegal. Mm-hmm. the reasons for that are weird and complex and we'll, we could come back to that but we have if there is a symptom in the body that an infusible herb would address I'm making sure that it's out there but we have another group of teas um, which I in my own head I call beverage teas mm-hmm. where yes they're made from herbs and of course herbs are good for you but they're, the the intention with flavor, aesthetics, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I personally don't think, sorry, me, the doctor, doesn't think that green tea as an infusion um, is meaningful medicine. It's meaningful food, and it supports a whole bunch of stuff. But all the really good research about the green tea um, polyphenols the dose is sort of 12 cups of of green tea a day all mm-hmm. your life. So if people want green tea as medicine, you need to go to a much stronger extract form. So um, we might be introducing some very pleasant black teas. You could argue that black tea is therapeutic. I don't. I mm-hmm. think of it as a beverage tea. So the challenge with... With the um, dietary supplement teams, there are lots of challenges. Um, there are two directions to move in, and this informs my two different formulation strategies. Okay. One is to try and create the possibility for a home medicine chest. And I've realized that not all Americans get what I mean by medicine chest. You, your own pharmacy in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So um, we've come out with a whole range of single herbs, which a herbalist or anybody with a simple herb book can set up a pharmacy, quite simply, um, skullcap, hawthorn, etc., dandelions, goes on and on and on. So the, the, that individual can formulate their own teas. On the other hand, we have teas for indications. Um, what the people here call need state teams. Now, to me, that's a bit artificial. The single herb addresses a need state. Skullcap will relax you just as well as a complex nervine mixture might relax you. So we have my formulation criteria, which then have to integrate with uh, marketing and sales view of what the marketplace wants and needs. Mm-hmm. When I'm formulating needs, state tease. Um, I use, well, the, the formulation guidelines I was taught in Britain for tinctures, um, but I use it for formulating infusions, um, which basically is applying eclectic principles of identifying what processes you want to work with, which are the most important ones you want to work with, how are you going to balance the various uh, factors which will work with that. And then the one new factor for me, as opposed to teachers, we've got to make this taste good, um, which is not always possible. So there are some things that we could treat really well, but nobody would drink the tea. Because it just is vile. So, it's a combination of um, getting the therapeutics right, which is straightforward if you know if anybody has been trained. Making sure we've got quality herb available through sourcing, and unfortunately, um, global climate change is really hitting the herbal marketplace. Two years ago, you couldn't buy chamomile in Europe because there hadn't been any rain, that all the crops failed. Totally unpredictable, totally, completely freaked everybody out. Now there's lots of chamomile. So every year there's a new wave of, oh, we can't get this because of something completely out of our control. And all of those issues are going to get worse and worse and worse in the foreseeable future. So we've got therapeutic issues, we've got sourcing and sustainability issues, then we've got aesthetic issues. Does it smell all right? Does it taste all right? I'm really getting into the look of the tea. Unfortunately, hardly anybody makes herb teas in glass. They use cups, so they can't see my really beautiful colors, but what can you do? And um, the last one, it it gets really strange name recognition. Um, For a long time, we, well, you probably, when you looked at our product line, you didn't notice the skull cap or did you?
1: I did not. Uh, But I was pretty sure that it would be in one of the products that help you to sleep.
0: Them. The point is none of the boxes say Skull skullcap uh-huh. because the market has decided that would scare people. And um, when that sort of stuff comes up, I just throw my hands in the air and go, well, I won't tell you what I say, but it's, it's just silly. Um, they didn't want to use um, catnip because it might offend the dog people. How it's fascinating. Like, I just don't understand
1: Well, even though it's majority of the herbalists that have the respect for the company, but you are marketing to an average person that might not have the knowledge of herbs. And so, yeah, yeah. for someone that perhaps just starting with herbal medicine, you have years of experience and years of knowledge. And once again, there are like over 60 different types of preparations what are some of them that you are especially proud of? And how do you do you approach formulation in general? Or how should someone approach formulation in general?
0: All right, approaching it in general. Let me give you some categories. Um, obviously, to formulate something, you have a goal in mind. Mm-hmm. We're formulating this to do something. So first step always should be identifying tonics which support the organ or the tissue or the the system that is experiencing the health challenge. So it may not be a very active herb, but like um, milky oats is the best nerve tonic, but it doesn't actually bring about changed experience unless you're really exhausted. So you start off with a the tonic, then you identify um, herbal actions, which will help the person deal with the health challenge and make sure that they fit with the tonic, then if you need to, add things to make it taste palatable. And that's not... Actually, often we don't need to do that. So the tea that I feel best about, well, there are two. One is... um a very traditional alterative mixture of um, uh, roots with burdock, yellow dock, um, nettles, oh not all roots in cleavers, and that was they wanted me to do a detox tea, and I have no idea what detox actually means when we really get into the physiological mechanics so Detox could be interpreted as meaning alterative. So making an alterative tea for this weird marketing um, niche, we've been getting all sorts of feedback about how people's eczema has got better and all sorts of really obscure skin conditions have got better because of this tea. And that's exactly what I formulated it for. The, The second one is one which they're marketing as turmeric, but it's much more than turmeric. It's turmeric, ginger, and meadowsweet. Three different forms, uh, sorry, three different pharmacological types of um, anti-inflammatory. With enough of a dose of meadowsweet that you get the meadowsweet relief within 15 minutes. And then hopefully over drinking it for a few days, maybe a week or more, that gives a chance for the turmeric to start working. And we're having an incredible success with this team because nobody actually expects herbs to work, Which, because we're in a culture that doesn't. But I come from a culture that knows herbs work. So using Meadowsweet, we're getting incredible response from people. However, they think it's the turmeric, that's working that's just part of it it's the medicine that's working so my um, my sense of uh, fulfillment and success here comes from knowing that suffering has been alleviated I don't care about sales I care about the one person that gets better from drinking our teas and actually it's many more than one person thousands of people
1: I absolutely love it areas that really impressed me were the ideas of quality and impact. And you mentioned them earlier in this conversation. I was really pretty amazed to see some of the numbers, whether it is the use of certified organic herbs or the use of non-GMO plants, but also things that were related to the actual production of teas. And I have to tell you that I visited traditional medicinals, and I can't exactly remember if it was about 10 years ago, there was an American Herbalist uh, Symposium. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and so we had a trip to traditional medicinals. And I was uh, so amazed by the facility itself.
0: Oh, everything is so different now. Those, really? Those were old, ancient machines. The new technology just blows okay. me away. Like. And something which amazes me, all the tea bag machines come from Italy. And nobody can tell me why. All the teabag machines used in North America are all made by Italian companies. Interesting. Just one of those things. Um, the numbers are skyrocketing everywhere. Okay. Any measure you use, the volumes are increasing, which means the problems are increasing. Mm-hmm but the solutions are increasing it. um, One of the things we've put a lot of energy into and attention into is certifications, not just certification of um, that we're organic, but actually supporting all the attempts to quantify what's going on. So, Um, we know what we use, of course, but we're Mm -hmm. also in touch with how much is happening in the international marketplace. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that that really brings home to me is the need to avoid the international marketplace. The quality of herbs in the ordinary spot market are abysmal. So it really affirms the need for... um, Having healthy relationships with your growers and suppliers, um, making sure the quality is is assessed at every stage of of the process. Um, And what that, unfortunately, what that all comes down to is making sure that the people at the bottom are being paid enough. Now, I said that the wrong way. I don't mean, unfortunately, they should be paid enough. Unfortunately, they are not paid enough. So we have to make sure that, um, some of the profits that the herb world is generating go back to the people who actually did the real work. You know, if you ever look at the price of, um, of wild-crafted linden flower, which is a totally wonderful herb, um, Whatever they're being paid, they're not being paid enough because little flowers high up in this enormous tree and they have to, and they're very light and they're gathering tons and tons. Whatever they're doing, they're not being paid enough. Um, Trying to tell that to accountants is hard work. So...
1: I understand, I understand. Some of the issues that we have been talking about are the challenges for traditional medicinals and for the field of herbalism. Are there areas that excite you? Yeah, um,
0: what what I'm finding very, very positive is the way in which not the new generation of herbalists, (laughs) this will sound ageist, in the 90s, there weren't all that many young people coming into herbalism. There's this large group of people from the 70s and 80s, and then there were people. And then, for the last 10 years, as a movement, herbalism has taken off in this country. I'm not talking about the marketplace, I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about people learning how to be their own herbalist um, with potentially traditional medicinals actually supplying some of the the herbs that they use. But I am totally supportive of what I would call people's herbalism. That's the most important thing we can do. As far as I'm concerned, in 50 years' time, there will not be the commercial vehicle of Western capitalism. The whole thing is collapsing. What isn't collapsing is the garden And another thing that isn't collapsing is human need for the herbs in the garden, so there is a role for the herbalist to be the interface between humanity and medicinal plants. And it doesn't matter what the government do or what nature's way does, herbalists always have herbs, always have the source, and um, hopefully will always have the knowledge. So I I think the future is looking really good for herbalism. The culture and the country are screwed. Herbalism is really healthy.
1: Uh, I, I love hearing the message of the vitality of the community and so based on that I wanted to ask about some of the favorite resources for these new blossoming members of this herbal community so whether they might be specific books or journals or communities or products right. anything that you can come up with in terms of guidance to especially the new generation of herbalists yeah.
0: well It used to be that I would buy every book on herbs that was published. I can't do that anymore. Um, There are so many books from so many countries. Some are written by good herbalists. Some are written by good doctors who are bad herbalists, good herbalists who are bad doctors. There's all sorts of qualities. So rather than giving books and journals, Because, right, for journals, there's there's about 20 herb journals now, of which five are really crucial. Somebody who uses journals should just go into PubMed and do herbal medicine and start exploring. But having said that, any new book, there's two things to do to be able to assess it for your own needs. Herb books are going to be, well, I'm not talking about growing and medicine making in the woman. Books about herbs and their uses. They're going to be two sorts of things. Either books about what a herb will do, you know, the classic Materia Medica herbal, and then books about treatments. So... What I recommend my students do is get to know, read around one herb really well. Say dandelion, root and leaf. Read what Mrs. Greve says. Read what David Winston says, what Susan Weed says. What, And you'll see that there's a core amount of dandelion stuff that's exactly the same because it's dandelion. We all share that stuff. So when you find a new book that you're interested in, look up dandelion. And see what the author says. If it's the same as 90% of what everybody else says, that, at least that means that person isn't making anything up. But then if there is a single creative thought in there, either about a new treatment or a new possibility or medicine-making ideas, then maybe get the book. Um, because it's going to be the new ideas that that you want to know. However, if there is a really bad mistake or a stupid mistake, don't get the book. The person is probably a journalist. All right. And for treatments, get to know the standard approaches to treating whatever you're interested in, a cough or eczema or whatever. Look that condition up in the new book you're looking at and see what it says and see if it makes sense, see if they've made mistakes, see if it is actually a herbal book or an allopathic book using herbs as drug delivery systems. Um,
1: I, I, like, I like that approach in terms of the allopathic delivery versus herbal delivery. And very often, I teach pharmacy students. It's a concept that I really need to discuss with my students. And I want to, to take you one little step back when you were talking about uh, books that are specifically uh, talking about Materia Medica. I never realized that it was you who was talking about this, but uh, now I understand what the source is. I have a few slides in my presentation presentations and notes where I actually go and I take some of the herbs and I compare who Mm. talks about them in what different textbooks. And Mm. what fascinates me is that how differently herbalists discuss uh, different plants, but also how different databases can be about this stuff as well. And so that is always very, very interesting for me to see. And the the lesson out of this (laughs) is typically that you need to refer to several different databases or several different books in order to to really come to a good good clinical decision and good clinical Conclusion. Can
0: I add something to that? Um, sure. That's the way to relate to the modern books. Um, and there's some really good ones which cover research as well as briefly cover the traditional stuff. But I would strongly recommend adding to that by getting some eclectic Materia Medicus, which... If you try to buy them, they're really expensive because they're antiquarian books now. But if you go to Google Books, they're all in there as free downloads. So the one that I would recommend to everybody is King's American Dispensatory. Right. It's written in in Victorian English, so it's not an easy read. Well. No, it is an easy read. It's just, it's not modern English. Um, and you have to remember that all of those eclectics, and again, forgive my politics, um, they were white Victorian men. So there are some attitudes in those books that are just horrendous. Um, but that's not what you're reading Materia Medica is for. The factual stuff about what herbs do, you can't do better than those
2: books.
1: That's a really great advice. Thank you. And I will definitely include the, some of the links from books that you're recommending in the show notes. So that will definitely yeah, happen.
0: And if you like, I can email you a list of links that I use in my classes.
1: That um, would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. All right.
0: Off the top of my head, I can't remember any, but I'll send it off at the end of the day.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So, David, as we're coming to an end of this conversation, I have a couple of more questions. So one of them is, where can our audience learn more about you and uh, learn more from you? That's the first one. And then my last question is, do you have any closing thoughts for our audience? Any words of wisdom?
0: Well, there's closing thoughts, and then there's words of wisdom. I'll just do the closing thoughts. Um, but about me, I, I made a decision about fifteen, ten, fifteen years ago to have nothing to do with the internet. I don't trust it, um, but we w- won't go into why. There's there's a whole reason there. So I am not, I'm not findable on purpose. I still do some conferences, but um, what I'm now doing is just writing and I have a book coming out next year, um, title we haven't decided, but it's about herbalism in the 21st century. Looking at how science has provided evidence that synergy in herbalism works, all that stuff is real, but more importantly, the ecology of herbalism is the same as the ecology of saving the planet. Um, so I'm putting all my energy into trying to come up with a coherent rant about that. Um,
1: and David, can I can I also mention that I will include links to some of your previous books so our audience can actually explore them and find them and learn from you perhaps that way.
0: My main books are all published by um, Healing Arts Press, Inner Traditions.
1: Perfect, perfect. And
0: I have a postgraduate degree in herbalism. I'm really following all the new science. And uh, what the most important, meaningful thing for us to do is hug trees is to change our attitudes, is to be simple, to just be the blade of grass. Um, we're not going to be able to change what's going on in the world. What we can do is keep people healthy as they make it through these coming years. So I said something in a, a com- in a class once, which was taken out of context, but it sort of works. When in doubt, use nettles. I love that. So you could say that's a general point. When in doubt, be simple. Originally, that was if you don't know which alternative to use, use nettles. But as a generalization, it still works. Um, We don't need to be clever. We don't need to have all the chromatograms done. It's really nice for people like me and us to have all that information, but that would not have made Mrs. Grieve a better herbalist or Hildegard a better herbalist. The science does not improve herbal medicine. It creates a framework within which herbal medicine can be accepted by our culture. But it doesn't make the herbalism better. Nettles is nettles.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you so much. My gratitude to you for joining me for this conversation with David Hoffman. This episode is proudly brought to you by Traditional Medicinals. You can find the link to their online shop in the show notes at plantloveradio.com. 51 The company generously offered to raffle a set of their three newest teas for the listeners of this episode. To enter the raffle, head over to cove-fee.com slash plantloveradio and post a comment on a giveaway post, perhaps a lesson or message that really resonated with you from the episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting me once or on a monthly basis. The best way to do this is through the website where I post the giveaways, co ficom slash radio. You can also find the link in the show notes or on my website The music you hear in the introduction was written by a neighbor of mine David Scholl and is called Something About Cat My deepest gratitude to Bill Gilligan for this opportunity to play it Thanks again for being here today I really appreciate you Till the next time Thank you for loving plants and planting love.